Let's start with this morning's uh, drone attack on Kyiv. What can you tell us? This is Ukraine's new reality. Critical infrastructure is ablaze, and Russia's so-called kamikaze drones are trying to break the Ukrainian spirit. Shortly after the war's first anniversary, Russia used a volley of low-flying drones to attack targets across Ukraine. And in the past five months alone, there have been more than a dozen assaults on the national power grid. Power plants all across Ukraine have been hit and half the electricity is out. Officials say nine power facilities were damaged. Air defenses are said to have intercepted most of the incoming missiles, but even then, debris must fall somewhere, and it can fall anywhere. And when missiles and drones fall or are shot down, Ukrainian forces find whatever remains of them and then pass them off to people like weapons investigator Damien Spleters. Unexploded weapons, it turns out, have a lot of intelligence value. Okay, so we are walking in this room, and in front of us is a Shahed-131 that was recovered by Ukrainian forces, and we can see the carcass right there. Iran makes the Shahed-131, and while Tehran officially denies providing them, Russia is using these drones in Ukraine. Its engine is small, like lawnmower or moped small, so it's slow-moving and really noisy. Which is one of the reasons why Ukrainians have been able to shoot so many of them down. They can hear them coming. And then they end up in front of people like Damien. He works for a group called Conflict Armament Research. He's their deputy director of operations. All right. When Damien dissects grounded drones, he goes through a meticulous process. He photographs them and then traces their components through the global supply chain. He tracks every step those little pieces make, from factory to distributor to manufacturer. And he's been doing this so long that every chip, every battery, every antenna, well, they speak to him. My main interest in looking at weapons is that it functions to me as a physical document. Its whole chain of custody and, you know, all the hands it went through and where it was made and how it arrived there and how it was used and all that. And I think through that, you can then tell a story about the conflict you're looking at, about the war you're looking at. By investigating the story of this weapon piece by piece, he hopes to change the fight. Think of it as activism by way of supply chain. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, a look at what drones in Ukraine are revealing about the war, the global supply chain, and the logistical pinch points for components. In the commercial world, supply chain used to be some back office thing. Now it's front and center. And eventually, companies may end up having to find new ways to track the parts they sell. You know, it's a, it's a tremendous challenge. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily. 
from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. In 2005, Nicolas Cage starred in a movie called Lord of War. It was about an arms trader. There are over 550 million firearms in worldwide circulation. That's one firearm for every 12 people on the planet. The only question is, how do we arm the other 11? These are the kinds of guys Damien is up against. And while this movie was loosely based on the life of a Russian arms dealer named Victor Boot... I supplied every army but the Salvation Army. Damien says his piece of the global arms trade is a lot less sexy. This is the Hollywood vision, you know, of how it works. <laughs> but weapon diversion is, is much more mundane than that, you know. So you don't have, like, a single person that will be, like, intent on, on diverting those weapons for those terrorists or whatever. Essentially, Damien isn't hopping on military jets on the trail of the next Victor Boot. Instead, he's collecting data cataloging and tracing thousands of individual weapons transfers in order to figure out where their components are coming from. Even the tiniest thing, a chip or a semiconductor, can offer volumes of information. The way it usually works uh, with the semiconductor industry is that the type of marking you'll have on some chips uh, denotes the week and year of manufacture. And through that information, usually they can find records of, you know, a list of distributors that got the parts a lot of the time, it's a kind of triangulation analysis. We will identify, you know, the same end users, the same distributors, and then little by little, we'll uncover the acquisition networks that Russia and Iran have been using. If you trace the components, you might be able to get companies to stop supplying them to the bad guys and maybe hobble the weapon altogether. The strategy has worked before, like when Damien was tracing ISIS weapons in Syria and Iraq. So we were looking through their trash and looking at like the remains of the, the packaging that they were using to make the homemade explosives that they were using in tons and tons. Damien realized that they were standardizing their explosives to make sure they would work every time. They went back to the same manufacturers time and again because they could trust them and the components they sold. It turns out the same holds true for drones. And now when you look at Ukraine, you know, we're looking at uh, Russia and, you know, standardization is also going on there. They, they want to use always the same kind of proven components that they have tested and integrated into their systems. The standardization makes the weapons components Damien finds a little easier to track. Take, for example, Russian missiles. Damien has taken several different kinds of missiles apart, and he discovered that they all use the same satellite navigation module. That module is made from a specific set of components made by specific manufacturers. So imagine if you were able to just make that one module a little harder to get. That means that if you're able to make an impact on the chains of supply of this very particular set of technology, you will impact four different models of Russian missiles. So how does somebody become a weapons investigator? What do you start out as? I started as a journalist, actually, um, getting interested in weapons and how they are used and how they get into conflict areas. 
And while he was still a journalist, Damien was writing about the use of Belgian weapons in modern conflicts. Things like tracking how Belgian weapons were used in Libya, and then how those same weapons ended up in Mali shooting at Belgian troops a few years later. That naturally led to trying to identify Belgian arms dealers, and then, eventually, maybe inevitably, to conflict armament research. Got hired by them in 2014 as a field investigator to go to Syria and Iraq uh, looking at Islamic State weapons. Conflict armament research works with both governments and companies to piece together how particular weapons end up on a battlefield. And these days, Damien's area of focus is the Russia-Ukrainian war. He's been coming in and out of Ukraine since 2018, performing what amounts to an autopsy on various Russian munitions from drones to missiles. And that intimacy with the weapons may explain why he has this way of making them sound almost like a living, breathing thing. Let's put the scale on. Last month, Damien Sleeters traveled to Kyiv to get up close and personal with one of the Shahed 131 drones Iran has been providing to Russia. So this one has not been obliterated and there's no, still in them? No, also on the... Uh, Damien wants to know everything about the drone in front of him. No detail is too trivial. Have you seen any number on this uh, engine? Days from now, Damien will have extracted and photographed some 500 different components from the carcass in front of him. And then he and his team will analyze those components in depth. We will, you know, gather as as much contextual information as we can. So we will ask when the item was recovered and where exactly and in which circumstances and, you know, when and, and how it was brought to the place where we are documenting it now. Their analysis eventually traced some 500 components back to more than 70 different manufacturers in 13 different countries. And they discovered something surprising. Over 80% of the parts in that Iranian Shahed drone have some sort of link to a U.S. company. And why is that important? Because it means that both drone programs, Russian and Iranian, have this commonality in in the sense that they are both very dependent on non-domestic components. Translation? While sanctions are supposed to prevent U.S. companies from providing particular technologies to Russia and Iran, Damien has discovered that both Moscow and Tehran have found ways around that and somehow managed to build drones primarily out of U.S. parts. When we come back, what these components say about the efficiency of sanctions. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Do we have any idea 
how all these U.S. components, when they're supposed to be sanctions, and how they end up in an Iranian drone? Uh, the short answer is, is no. Um, there's... This is Dan Gettinger. He founded the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College, and now he's director of publications at the Vertical Flight Society. He's an expert on drones. Um, there are a variety of pathways that it appears that Iran has used to source components for its drones. So some of these components go through China, Taiwan, or, or you know, suppliers in third-party countries that may not even know that they are supplying components for Iranian drones. He says some of these components and drones are so common, they might also be parts used in TVs, phones, and computers. So it's hard for a manufacturer to know where their chips end up. So that's part of the challenge, just the, the number of pathways that it could take. It's unclear how they eventually get there. That's why Damien says he and his team never single out specific manufacturers in their reports. We know that naming a manufacturer and saying, yeah, it's, it's uh, manufacturer X from the U.S., will not solve your problem. It will not give you more information than you need to shut down Russian acquisition networks. What you need is the what comes after the manufacturer, you know, what distributors were used, what end users it was intended for. It's the cutouts that, they're, that are the problem, correct? It's the cutouts in between. It, it, it happens all at the distribution level. Like once it's left the factory and went through a large distributor and then to a smaller regional one or to an intermediary there in the region or the country, that's usually where the issue was and where, you know, the true intention was kind of veiled. But still, the components do tell Damien and his team something about the Iranian and Russian weapons programs. For example, a lot of the components he and his team have found are old. The vast majority of the semiconductors, for example, were produced between 2014 and 2021. And that's before they were specifically put on a sanctions list. So I think the, the, more, the more we go away from February 2022, the more we're likely to see changes in the type of components, the more we're likely to see, you know, sanctions starting to bite. Which is why Valerie Lindsay, the executive director of the Wisconsin Project on Nuclear Arms Control, says that it's wrong to assume that Iranian and Russian drones being full of foreign components suggests somehow that sanctions have failed. I think sanctions and export controls really haven't been used to target the program yet. But that could change. U.S. and European officials are looking at ways to target drones with sanctions. Back in January, the U.S. Treasury imposed sanctions on some Iranian officials tied to drone manufacturing. They also targeted the director of an organization tied to Iran's ballistic missile program. And Lindsay said she thinks the European Union may not be far behind. There may be more of an appetite. I think there will be more of an appetite on the part of the European Union to go after the Iranian drone program directly. So I think there's a lot of room on sort of the sanction side of things. The EU appears set to level sanctions on a roster of companies, many of which are linked to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which has been helping deliver drones to Russia. A senior EU official told Axios that the list of entities came from intelligence reports provided by Ukraine, and it included an analysis of Iranian drones that were captured and disassembled. Look at the serial number we found. <laughs> And while Iran has denied supplying any drones to Russia, clearly, given Damien's work, that isn't true. 
And that's the thing about physical artifacts. They provide one thing that's hard to come by in the fog of war. What well, one of the first thing that dies in conflict is like the truth. These artifacts have, and they, they hold in them a piece of history, a piece of truth um, that can be extracted if you if you look at it, you know, long enough and 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 well enough. News reports suggest that China is in talks with Russia about providing its own version of the kamikaze drone, which might give Damien a new weapon to whisper to. This is Click Here. Here are some of the week's top cyber and intelligence headlines. Cyber criminals use the world's obsession with chat GPT to distribute malware and carry out cyber attacks last week. Researchers at the threat intelligence company Cybel said they found bad actors setting up phishing websites that look like something from chat GPT in order to lure people to click on links to their malware. Cybel said it's seeing hackers create a variety of fake websites with ChatGPT's logo as a lure to spread Android malware and to steal credit card information. An unofficial ChatGPT social media page promoted the websites and then invited people to check out their other offerings. The computer networks of nine hospitals in Denmark went down on Sunday evening following a distributed denial-of-service attack. A DDoS attack is an attempt to crash an online network by flooding it with traffic. A group calling itself Anonymous Sudan claimed responsibility. Copenhagen's health authority announced on Twitter that while the hospital's websites were down for a few hours, care at the facilities was unaffected. Anonymous Sudan said it launched the attacks in response to an incident in Stockholm in which a Quran was burned in front of the Turkish embassy by a local far-right politician. Trusek, a Swedish cybersecurity company, said that it thought the group isn't an authentic part of the anonymous movement, but rather was likely created as part of a Russian misinformation operation. And finally, more than 750 cybersecurity specialists from around the world have participated in one of the largest ever live-fire cyber war exercises. The cyber exercise took place in Estonia and was an opportunity to watch them respond to a series of simulated cyber threats that mirror the kind of tactics deployed by Russia in its war on Ukraine. They were asked to battle cyber attacks on critical networks, industrial control systems, and unmanned robotic systems. The seven-day competition, which concluded last week, saw participants judged on the effectiveness and speed of their response and how quickly they were able to identify and adapt to new threats. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer. And Gabriella Glick is our intern. The show is edited by Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski, and fact-checking is by Darren Ancrum. Our theme music and original compositions in the episode are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And we want to hear from you. So please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. Or send us an email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com and check out our website, clickhereshow.com. That's it for this week. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. 
and we'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.